Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's so nice to be with you. Thank you for being here. Good morning, everyone in the digital world. Can you all hear me okay? okay wonderful. So, I'm, I, uh, I'm thinking about this talk today as a uh, part two of the first talk I gave in the sequence that I gave a few weeks ago. That topic was confirmation bias. And essentially what, what I think I was trying to say was how hard it is for us to move out from underneath confirmation bias. So I thought I'd start by a restatement of, of the issue. And I'll read a little uh, a quote for you to do that. In the long run, my observations have convinced me that some men reasoning preposterously first establish some conclusion in their minds, which either because of its being their own or because of their having received it from some person who has their entire confidence, impresses them so deeply that one finds it impossible ever to get it out of their heads. Such arguments in support of their fixed idea as they hit upon themselves or here set forth by others, no matter how simple and stupid these may be, gain their instant acceptance and applause. On the other hand, whatever is brought forward against it, however ingenious and conclusive, they receive with disdain and hot rage, if indeed it does not make them ill. Beside themselves with passion, some of them would not be backward even about scheming to suppress and silence their adversaries. Adversaries, pardon. And those were the words of Galileo, who uh, said the earth was not the center of the universe. And when, when he offered that proposition, he was sentenced to death. So the question that I'm trying to address is what means do we have available to us to help us get out from under confirmation bias when it's such a sticky, difficult human problem? And one of the immediate solutions that humanity has come up with itself is this practice called reading. I think the basic idea of reading is that you have these other ideas located in books. And if you read, then that you'll, they'll enter your world and then you'll uh, potentially overcome your own mind. But a funny thing happens in the Zen tradition. If you read the historical record of the Zen masters of, of yesterday, you will come across many, many, many warnings about reading and books and texts. Lin Chi, one of our ancestors, said, books are dumb clouds. They are worthless dust. 
the injunction, I think, there being that the Zen masters of yesterday want us to have immediate experience. And in books, it's, it's a kind of experience that's removed from that which is immediately here. And there's also this idea, I think, in, the, in this disparagement against books, that something like insight depends, that depends on somebody else, is not authentic. Or not original. And so we hear in some version or other from the ancient Zen masters, this phrase, no dependence on language and texts. But that raises an even more obvious problem. If you came across the warning, no dependence on language and texts, the odds are extraordinarily high that you did that while reading. So welcome to the, the common Zen world of paradox. <laughs> reading is worthless. <laughs> As you read that warning. So one question we might ask ourselves is why might these Zen masters or Zen practitioners, our patriarchs, have been so uh, adamant with their warnings? What were they really trying to say? They were obviously aware of the paradox, but there's got to be a message in there somewhere. And I think if we just do a little bit of historical analysis, well, I don't want to go too deep down that road, but the very surface level, uh, call it intuition into, into the meaning of their warnings, I would state it like this. A lot of people were reading in order to procure merit for themselves. Likewise, there's a lot of reading being done to attain scholarly attainment. You also have to recall that many of these traditions were often passed orally, and so you have to read a lot in order to memorize. And then probably what ended up happening was the focus was on, on the memorization and a kind of ingestion of texts. And so these, these critiques against reading seem to be saying that knowledge of awakening and embodied awakening are not the same thing. That there is a clear difference between a scholar who, under, who knows about awakening and the embodied person who performs lives from a state of awakened being. And so to summarize the warning, I think what they're basically saying from my perspective is that reading could cause indigestion. If you, if, if you uh, are, let's say, greedy for the written word and you ingest too much of it, you will probably be left with a shallow understanding of that which you read. So one meta question to consider at this point for any of us is to ask ourselves, for anyone uh, with this reading habit, I don't want to project on anyone, but if you have a reading habit uh, and you tend to like or enjoy Zen books specifically, why do you want to read Zen books? 
So just sit with that for a little bit. What is it that you think you're doing when you're reading Zen books or books about Zen or maybe any books about spirituality, say, or practice? What, do you, what is it that you think you're doing? And so to clarify this point, what I'm up to now, what I'm really trying to say is that the issue is not reading itself. The issue is the style of reading, the attitude in which we read. That's really the focal point or way out of the paradox. So this attitude of reading that I think we need to examine in ourselves has two clear, there are two clear problematic ways, I would say. One, I would say, is this, I guess I would call it a Western romantic idealist way of reading that tries to be scientific and objective. And therefore, when, when reading from this attitude, you're basically deliberately keeping the books and yourself separate. Because in, in, with this attitude, what you're saying is the knowledge is in here and it's pure. And I need to keep my own stuff out of it so that I could really truly examine cleanly and purely what these books say. I don't want to contaminate that which is in these books. In other words, I want to attain this knowledge like a scientist would. I don't want to, I don't want to influence the experiment with my dirty hands, let's say. And so that kind of reading where you're on the outside and the book is called, let's say the inside, um, enables a reading that is, I would say, abstract. And it leads further to, I think, a bigger problem. It's a kind of, um, by keeping that which you read at a distance for science's sake, it's still lending you this, leaning uh, you towards a disposition to be unwilling to reflect on that which you're reading yourself. And so I would say this is what enables this kind of indigestion. You're just ingesting, 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 but meanwhile over here, you're, you're sort of separate from the act itself, deliberately. So the mindset of this kind of reading is basically one that says, this book that I'm reading is about others, but not about me. It's a kind of historical way of reading. And I think this version is, should feel obvious. I think this one is a little more obvious in terms of like why it's a problem and um, why we might wish to avoid this style of reading. But there's, I think, a much more sly and maybe hard to intuit problem that's the second attitude which I think more of us are susceptible to. And it's this. I would call it an attitude of piety, reading with a pious attitude, which means that I'm going to kind of exaggerate this point to make it clear what I'm talking about. 
let's say I'm a devoted Zen practitioner and I think to myself, Zen is the best. So I go and I read my Zen books. If I'm bringing to this book an attitude of piety toward the subject that I'm reading about, then all that's going to happen is that everything that I read will confirm that which I already know. I'm going to be projecting onto these, in theory, new ideas, anything that really challenges this view I have that Zen is the best. So this kind of takes us immediately to this real question I'm talking about, one of confirmation bias. If, if I go to the bookstore to read a book about Zen, it's probably because I already think Zen is the best, and then I'm going to read that book and end up saying, yep, I was right all along. All these ideas in here are great. <laughs> they're right, they're true. And that may, in fact, objectively, to some extent, be the case, but notice what is, does not happen with this attitude. There is no real possibility to transform ourselves if all we're doing is nodding in agreement ahead of time. So in other words, this attitude of reading from a pious mind prevents a radical overturning of mind. And if you listen to the Zen ancestors talk about what it is they think they're doing, they kind of say it this uh, potentially aggressively. This is a radical practice intended to overturn your mind. So you may wish to, and this is very human of us to do this. This is very normal. So one question we may want to ask ourselves is, why do we read often with this pious attitude? What is it that makes this kind of confirmation bias so attractive to us, especially as Zen practitioners? When we're told repeatedly over and over again, this is a radical practice. And I think deep down for all of us, at least maybe I'll project my own answer into this space, is that we really feel that it's important for us to stay safe. Being safe and staying safe with that which we already know is a really understandable human response because the world is dangerous. There are all sorts of things that could kill us, either literally or metaphorically. And so I think what I want to conclude this talk with is if, uh, if this is the sort of diagnosis, these two attitudes of reading, either keeping ourselves at a distance or being pious and simply confirming that which we already like and believe, what is the middle way of reading? And I think one of the first things is to acknowledge that we cannot be blank slates. We do have beliefs. It is just a misunderstanding of the Dharma to say that what we ought to do is get rid of all our, our ideas and preferences and be uh, in this kind of perfect state to receive the truth. But that is impossible. That is not how humanity and the mind and body work. We do already believe things, and we will continue believing things. But let's acknowledge that at least, that we do have beliefs. And so a different way of saying that is that transformation, the kind of transformation that we're talking about, can only happen when there's something there to be transformed. So let's be happy with that. Bring your own beliefs to the table. 
And then I'm going to use a fancy word from philosophy, forgive me, but I think it really is the best word in this case. If you read in this middle way, what you're really going to do is undergoing a kind of dialectic. That's the fancy word, which sort of implies you're taking that which you already believe, and then you're encountering this new idea, and then you're kind of going back and forth, back and forth between the two in this kind of process of dialectical thinking, which maybe if done thoroughly and authentically, it's going to create some new third thing that did not exist before. The Zen world would call that radical transformation. And so it's not your past experiences that we have to let go of. It's, I would say, your will, that kind of, um, your will to safety, which is a strong force. And Zen, in our Zen tradition, this is very clear from so many of the sutras and so many of the teachings over the millennia. Zen, Zen itself ridicules naive, unexamined belief. Like in no uncertain terms. So we have to read, I think, not with a will towards safety, but with a spirit of openness. Which again, I would suggest has dangers in it. And so the Dharma basically says or invites us to one, try to be aware of all the different beliefs that we have and be open for all of them as systems of thinking to be critiqued. You don't have to let go of them. You certainly don't have to adopt something new immediately, but to what extent are you willing do you have the spirit to critique in the name of, call it experiment to see what might happen next? So to summarize this point, I think as readers of Zen books, we have to be willing to let the text, the book work on us in the moment of reading. That's the cost that we have to be able to bear. So I'll end with my actual instructions on how to read in the Zen way. And I would say I have like seven ingredients here. Here's what I came up with. Reading the purpose of reading is not to know, but to embody the wisdom within. Not about knowledge, but about an embodied wisdom. So those of us who read in a kind of scholarly way, this might be an interesting um, practice piece. Second, I would encourage all of us not to make holy that which we read, because that is a ditch that takes us immediately into the confirmation bias trap. The, the different way of, of restating this is be curious about the things that you're reading, but don't assume a priori that it's true just because it has a certain label you happen to already agree with ahead of time. The third suggestion is be open as best you can to views and books and texts that are other, that are weird, 
that make you uncomfortable or that just might be different from that which you already know. Kind of like in the animal kingdom, there are all kinds of creatures out there. <laughs> there are like porcupines and tigers and domestic house cats and puppies and little, little fuzzy ducks. And we tend to want to save all the cute animals, <laughs> but the ones that, that have sharper teeth or, you know, have weird eyes, those, yeah, don't, don't worry about those, right? We try, we tend to push those away. So this invitation to read is when you notice a strange creature in front of you, move toward it and see what happens. This is not a recommendation, by the way, to spend your night with a, you know, with a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a metaphor to, to a large extent, but I hope you get what I'm saying. And then as you encounter these strange farm creatures, watch very carefully how you react to the experience of the encounter. Because if it's a good book, it will cause something to happen. That was, that's the whole point, I think, in theory. You're reading, at least reading in the Zen way, you're reading in order for something to happen. And so when it does, pay attention. But this piece, I think, is harder to do skillfully than we might acknowledge because our minds, especially through reading, they're going quickly and there's something about like rushing to want to get to somewhere. So I would say slow down, slow way down. And if you're reading something that makes you uncomfortable, really try to pay close attention to that discomfort. What's the source? Where's it coming from? What voice is activated when you come across a view, let's say, that you really, really disagree with? Notice what shifts in you, in your body. Is it your heart rate that goes up? Does your breathing get quicker? Do you get annoyed? Do you immediately want to lash out at someone in anger? Do you want to shame? Like, what's your reaction to coming across something that is uncomfortable? The next instruction to reading in the, with the mind of Zen is to real to become the object of reading. And realize, this is, this is really kind of mind-blowing, I think, that you are not, in fact, fully in control of the journey of enlightenment. The journey of enlightenment is something that, in a large ways, large way happens to us, and we are vessels through which this stuff happens. So if you become the object of that which you're reading, then there's a kind of element of surrendering that. Like what happens when this and this come together in me? So when reading Zen specifically, realize that what you're really studying is yourself. Whatever the book is about, whatever topic is in that book, that is not really the true subject. You are the object of study. If you observe how the world you're reading 
is performing its magical alchemy on you, instead of getting indigestion, you'll get a deeply satisfying meal. And the last thing I'll say is that the world itself is our real text of study. The world itself is the great sutra. The reading I'm talking about here is not limited to books. If we take this attitude of reading out into the world, that is where this whole thing that we talk about in Zen, the process and way of enlightenment, that is how it happens. When we read this way with the world, and we read everything, and don't keep anything out, So that, those are my remarks about reading in the style of Zen. I'm so curious to see if you guys have any response to that, anything that arose in you in what I said. Yeah, so I had a college teacher who used to say, listen to everyone and believe no one. And I, uh, I keep reminding myself about that. I don't know, you know, there's probably problems there, but also it, uh, it allows us not to be taken in just because someone said it. Also, um, this morning I was reading some Talmud stuff from Judaism, and it was an interesting discussion about the difference between anonymous statements and statements by revered rabbis, and how you take, how you accept something differently when you, you don't know the source, it's just the idea, and in a way it opens us up to a certain kind of examination that we don't have when a great person, like the Buddha said, you know, there's that, or Joe said, or Anonymous said. So that was interesting that they make that distinction. And then some of the anonymous statements, there's great arguments about who actually said it, trying to figure out if it's more valid because someone, you know, big says it instead of someone small said it. That was interesting. I see there are two hands raised, but I'm not sure who's. Irma? Oh, yes, we have Irma first. So I am so glad that you brought this up because uh, we as humans are so judgmental even though we try not to be and we lead by the ego and I really do believe that books are the gateway to open your mind to new experiences and determine if that is the path you want to go down. But I know that we as humans have a problem with trying to be open, trying to not be judgmental. So I just wanted to say, I really appreciate that because we as humans can't learn anything without being able to go down a path to see if maybe our beliefs or wants were incorrect. So thank you for your words because it's exactly what I needed to hear. And we have Joan. 
uh, I'm happy to say I can I have a voice today it's the first time well I had it yesterday since December 11th and things do change um, when you were talking Christoph about um, the Zen master saying don't you know forget about books and all one of the things I thought of is that they uh, wanted us to be um, experiencing things rather than in our heads that in reading it's a thinking um, experience and I was really um, you know broken open when you talked about as you read see what is occurring within you that it is putting you back into the present instead of taking you apart into this thinking world and I, I found that a very um, interesting and exciting proposition. So thank you for that, Christoph. Thank you, Joan. Uh, Cersei. Thank you for this wonderful talk. Um, I, I'm going to bring my anthropologist self into this conversation because one of the things that's really interesting to me is thinking about um, many non-Western traditions where knowledge is rooted not in the mind. Like we think so, we're so Descartian and sort of thinking it's here out in this abstract thinking place where we're going to know. And as you spoke this morning about Zen tradition, embodied knowledge is really critical. And I think, and to talk about Nietzsche, so as we know you've been reading a lot of Nietzsche, Nietzsche actually references this knowing as, and this is Western, of course, but um, as these knowledge stones that rattle around inside your stomach. So there's this idea that there are these stones rattling around inside of you. And many um, Pacific Island cultures talk about knowing in the gut, right? This is where you know is in your stomach. And so I think I'm really curious about what embodied knowledge means. Because when we're reading, like how, I know that, you know, you're talking about our encountering it with our, our whole selves. Um, and that implies a kind of subjective self that is, that is mind and body. But how do we, what more can we say about how to recognize the embodied part of it, because that's so critical. I mean, our practice is a bodily practice and we're trying to kind of tame the mind, but I think I, I feel like so much of my Western bias mind part that I don't know always how to recognize when something's hitting me in that way. And also because we have gut reactions that are often about like feelings and mind and all that stuff, how do we how do we know when we're having like embodied an embodied experience of something new that is wisdom coming to us versus like a repulsion in the physical sense? Yeah, that's such a great question, Cersei. I think the this is why a key piece of what I try to introduce is this the upaya piece, the skillful means piece, requires us to go slow. That's in part, if you think about it, it shouldn't sound too strange when we walk Kinhen around the room really, really slowly and why we sit in silence without much movement. This is training us to really be deliberate and slow and not rush to judgment, right? And so to speak to the body piece, imagine coming across a perspective that you, as you're reading it, really, really like. If you really, really like it, you can pay attention to your heart and you're going to feel sensations that, that are maybe your head's going up and down, right? Or maybe you feel like you're cracking a smile because you agree with this thing that you're reading. Well, if you add a little bit of slowness to that, you might give yourself the opportunity to ask, am I merely conf uh, confirming that which I already know? And that's what makes me feel good because I'm being affirmed or right. So that's, that's what the slowness piece, but now imagine you're reading a piece that is counter to everything you believe and know, and it's just wrong and 
has all these qualities that you disagree with. Well, if you slow down and pay attention to your body, you will feel maybe your, your heart that's racing, or maybe your palms are getting sweaty, or you're starting to feel angry, or condescension, or maybe even contempt, right? These are bodied experiences that the slowness of your practice will allow you to feel. And then that is the point where you acknowledge those things, you pause, and you allow yourself to reflect a little bit. You create that spaciousness where you say, okay, I'm really upset about this particular text. What's making me so upset? And then you use the amazing tool of mindfulness to really ask yourself, you know, is this because this thing I read is just factually and malevolently evil and malevolent, let's say, disinformation or misinformation, and it's wrong, and it's trying to cause harm? Or is it because maybe I feel upset because it makes me uncomfortable? And it challenges that which I thought was true for such a long time. And I'm upset because to acknowledge that this thing I read is maybe true would mean I have to admit that I was wrong. And boy, that makes me unhappy and angry. And so that then is where the wisdom piece eventually has a chance to do its work. Wisdom is that which allows us to discern between, say, malevolent disinformation and that which has some truth to it. And of course, in the Zen world, it's always changing and shifting and impermanent and arising in different contexts in different ways. But that embodied response is exactly what Circe's talking about. That is the thing you have to at least be a witness to and, and create spaciousness, spaciousness around so you could ask the next question. What is it that I'm feeling? We have Genève online. Well, thank you for this fruitful discussion. Um, I, I love what you were just saying about how it arises and changes. And I often think when, when monks or the Buddha are quoted as having responded to a certain question in a certain way, and then everybody takes that to be the answer to that question, I always think, well, maybe that's, maybe that's what the monk or the Buddha thought that particular person needed to hear at that particular moment. It doesn't make it the truth for all being at all times. Um, interestingly enough, when in my second sit today, I started thinking about art and I was thinking in very much the same things you've just been saying about reading, which is um, when we think of great artists, um, usually it's because someone told us they were great. Um, and we can respond to the art by just knowing that it's great because someone said so, or learning about you know, art crit criticism and, and understanding these brushstrokes were innovative. You know? But I was thinking how many people, how many, how many tremendous artists have there been who were never seen or never acknowledged and that the true function of art is to have an experience in relationship to the piece which is a non-brain experience. And, um, and, and in, in, a, in a parallel way, I was thinking while you were talking about how um, the wisdom can be stimulated in very unexpected ways. And it may be someone who's very marginalized who, who happens to say something at a particular time that just opens a world for you um, or uh, the cons, I think um, I really dislike them <laughs> generally, but I think what they often do is create an experience. They, they take you to a place where suddenly you don't understand anything and you don't know anything and you can't answer. And that's an experiential um, um, moment of being. And I think that great, or I should say maybe wise art or wise cons provoke us to experience um, not knowing so that we can be curious and allow um, wisdom 
to find its way in. So thank you very much. We have Becky also. You're on mute, Becky. I can unmute you if you have difficulties or do you prefer? Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate your having brought this forward as, a, as something for all of us to look at together and, and so on. Um, I, was, I was given a great gift when I was first here, which is weird because I didn't recognize it as that. But um, when I arrived in significant pain and with everything in terms of my life being uncertain, that at the same time, my body insisted that I not take in anything cerebral, cerebrally, right? And, and so here I was with everybody saying about this, this author and this book and this whatever, but the one thing that Appamata gifted me was the opportunity to learn and hear from other people's own experiences. That the, that the Dharma that you bring forth is from inside you. That's something that you've taken in and digested and are bringing it back through you. And, and so it was, it, it was perfect for me. But I also found that I couldn't like even go to the recorded things. I needed to be there at the same time. And, and fortunately that works fine on Zoom or at least it has for me. And, um, and so I really, I really appreciate this. Um, and I, I'd like to say something about the dialectics though, is that a very long time ago, I decided, sure, it's, it's better than some forms of, of linear types of, of thinking. And, and of inviting some change of our thinking, but it still is duality. It, it starts from a place and another place. Whereas I had to make up a word to, to try to describe what I was experiencing. And what I was experiencing is that when we have a new idea or perception or any of that range of stuff that can shift inside of ourselves. What I've observed and talked to some people and, and they have also had similar kind of sense of it, that what happens is it goes, goes into us and then it goes around all places. And so that's our, of our mind, of our body. And that it settles in or it doesn't. And after it goes around several times, then whatever's left that feels like it doesn't have ease, that has dis-ease, that that's the place to focus and say, okay, is this because of something in me or because of something in the, in the idea? It doesn't, it doesn't sit there well. And so I call that whole process oscillosphere essence. It's a word I made up. Uh, the oscilla being the, the movement back and forth amongst something like an oscillating fan or whatever. And the sphere is essentially the sphere of our body, of our mind together. And the Essence is either like for essence, it's something that is, you know, bubbly almost or something, or it's the essence, meaning the, the central piece of something. And so that's the word I made up. And it's one that I've loved to live with uh, because I, I think that in Zen, I found even more aspects of it than I had 
at the time that I was unsatisfied with the words we had for it. So I just wanted to share that and say how appreciative I am. And the slow is very important in reading things, in taking in anything that 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 you are inviting to, especially if you are inviting it to open new things in ourselves. Like because because a lot of times I found that I could read one sentence and spend the next day or so with it. Sometimes a paragraph, rarely a whole chapter. So I, I thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. And we have Rosemary. Hi, uh, thanks, Christoph, um, for raising you know really important things. Um, what came to mind for me in terms of piggybacking on what you said and what Becky said about the slowness, I thought, and also a way of of reading that. Um, the intention really is to read and look at yourself as the whole precepts program, because you have so much time you have a whole month with this one with this one precept. The whole purpose is to be reading and investigating yourself at the same time. So that's, you know, that that's it's slow and the whole intention is to have this dialogue between what you learn. And for me, it was, oh, I did. Oh, that I well, you know, everything was was uh, so much was new for me in looking at myself and what I do. And um, the other one is reading in a group with with the Sangha. I was very, very slow. I, I that was a whole whole um, adjustment for me, but um, very rewarding. And everybody, oh, so we read the sentence or paragraph, and everybody has a different way that it hits them, and we talk about that, and then we move on. So that that is also kind of a built-in um, slowness and um, integrating. Um, way of, of reading. So I just wanted to offer those two things. And the, the last thing is that somewhere in um, Suzuki Roshi's book, um, Beginner's Mind, is that his name? Is, that his book? Um, is um, don't believe in anything, experience it, and then and then see, see how you feel. It's somewhere in there. Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here and for listening.